Hey, Jay here. We're pushing ahead with our journey to understand what it takes to avoid stagnation in our work and instead create consistently great stuff. Our thesis this whole year, all of 2019, is that we have to master the art of reinvention. Not massive change, by the way, but tiny moments of innovation, making creativity a habit, not a Hail Mary. I think we've come a long way. Hopefully you've come with us, And uh, but I still have so many more questions. And by the way, this entire journey is leading to my brand new speech that I'm debuting in the fall of 2019 at Content Marketing World in Cleveland uh, and a bunch of other speeches this fall. And lest I panic about that stuff, you and I have a lot we need to answer uh, about this idea of mastering the art of reinvention. So one of the most pressing issues that I keep thinking about is this. What does it look like when everyone just accepts that what you do can't change. Maybe they think what you do is just too boring, you're in a boring industry, or it's not a part of the business that's exciting and needs innovation, or or maybe there's just no other way that people doing what you do do it, or maybe you're tasked with reinventing it for the better, but just the very thought of going up against decades of doing things a certain way feels too daunting. Whatever the case, there's some kind of friction and it feels pretty bad pushing against you. So to help us figure this out, uh, Unthinkable producer Tally Gabriel actually hopped on a subway from her home in Brooklyn and found herself in the middle of a pretty ridiculous, kind of hilarious experience, one that you too can actually experience if you know where to look and you're willing to spend between like 50 and 70 bucks. When I walk up the stone steps to New York City's Metropolitan Museum of Art, I'm hit by just how huge and beautiful the museum is. It takes up four New York City blocks, spilling into Central Park with these four massive columns and glass windows that reflect the light just perfectly. Then I tend to feel stoked about the art I know I'm going to see, and some casual light panic. I walk into the Great Hall and freeze. I'm standing in the middle of these huge stone arches and columns, trying to take in the sheer impressiveness of the space, while also trying to avoid getting shoved out of the way by European tourists. Next comes the big question, where to start? Okay, so there's Egyptian sarcophaguses and hieroglyphics to my right, marble Greek and Roman sculptures to my left, and Impressionist paintings, your classic Van Goghs and Monets, straight ahead. I think I started with Egypt last time, so I should go straight? Wait, no, Egypt was two times ago. I started with paintings last time, definitely, so let's do sculptures today. Yeah, definitely sculptures. Ooh, and I for sure want to end up in that room with the glass windows with half a whole Roman temple in it. Crap, where even is that again? If I do sculptures, will I have enough time to get there before my dinner plans in Brooklyn? And, oh yeah, there's some special exhibit I definitely have to see before it leaves. Actually, okay, scrap the sculptures in the temple room, let's find that first. Okay, find a museum guide. If I were a museum guide at the Met, where would I be? There! Okay, she's given me directions. Turn left past Washington crossing the Delaware and take the elevator up to the roof. Wait, this elevator doesn't go to the roof? Okay, I guess I'll go down. There's that gemstone room that's really cool. Wait, no, hold on. Is that here or at Natural History? Man, are anyone else's feet hurting? For so long, the way to experience museums has felt as old as the structures themselves. Buy your ticket, grab some kind of visual or audio guide, try your best to take in and learn as much as you possibly can in not enough time. Rinse, repeat. Even if you do manage to do better than me and end up in the room you were looking for, taking in each piece of art and reading all the plaques can be way tedious. The hero of our story today used to feel the same way about museums. 
He thought they were overwhelming, even boring, tourist traps that you only visited when your parents were in town. That is, until he started wondering how he could build a business around making museums fun. And most importantly, how he could make sure this business would never feel boring or old for him and his staff. That's right. And on the show today, our goal is to make some progress on a really hairy question. What do we do in the face of seemingly inescapable stagnation? When things feel too overwhelming or too boring or too fixed to actually reinvent them. It's renegade, it's historic, it's surprising. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo. And this story was reported and produced by the aforementioned and aforestressed out Tally Gabriel. Nick Gray, the founder of the museum tour company Museum Hack, isn't the only one who thinks museums can be boring. Yes, I can geek out a little at the Met, but plenty of times the thought of going to a museum has felt as appealing as getting a tooth pulled. And hey, I'm an artist. I studied art history in college. I love learning about art and getting up close and personal with other people's creations. And still, I confess, and as a person who likes to think of themselves as interested in culture, this isn't easy to say, sometimes I'm totally bored by museums. For Nick, going on a date to the Met one December evening was the inspiration needed to reinvent the museum experience. And keep reinventing and keep reinventing. I started Museum Hack. It all really started out of a hobby. Uh, This woman brought me on a romantic date to the Metropolitan Museum of Art about seven or eight years ago. And it was our third date. It was the middle of December um, she was planning the date. And so she suggested, let's, let's go to this museum. At the time I worked in sales and marketing for my family's, um, electronics company. And I did that Monday through Friday. I was very good at it and I loved my job, but you know, I didn't really go to museums. In fact, I thought they were boring. You know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is the type of place you go when your parents are in town. Uh, It's not the type of place that you go for a fun date. But she invited me, so I said yes. And we went, and it was the middle of December, and it was snowy outside, and like nobody was there. We had the whole thing to ourselves, and she gave me this very cool tour where she just talked to me at my level, which is basically like a third-grade reading level, about, you know, the art and the sculpture and Egyptian artifacts and all these things. And I was like, holy cow, this museum this place is awesome. Like, this is why I moved to a big city. And I started to go back to the museum again and again. I'd do my own research, just look things up because I was curious. Um, and then I started to do these very weird museum tours for my friends. I kind of took off and I just, I was forced to make a business out of it because it was so popular. What you just heard is Anna Bianco introducing Museum Hack's Winter Might Be Coming, the completely unofficial Thrones tour. You know, based on that TV show that just ended in a, well, in a disappointingly rushed fashion with way too many unearned climaxes and problematic moments. Anyway, I had the pleasure of taking this tour right before that final season started, and it was awesome. 
Anna's combination of energy, knowledge, and fly-by-the-seat-of-her-pants skills were insane. And exactly as Nick hoped, the tour was so much fun. I learned a ton about some art I'd probably never find on my own, like the difference between an ancient Mongolian and Chinese helmet in a suit of armor, got to nerd out about a favorite fantasy show of mine by letting everyone on the tour know just how much I'd read into the mythos behind ancient Valyria, tweet at me if you want to get into that, and never once had to ask a museum guide for directions. A win-win-win-win-win of a museum experience in my book. Okay, so Tally, I have a, I have a quick question for you. Okay. You're, uh, you're pretty, I don't know, with it. Like you might say you're hip and fun. I have a child right now who's seven months old. And it, so you're, you're like, you're like, uh, you're hip and with it, right? Is that your question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what I'm saying. I don't think it's the right way to say it anymore. Anyways, uh, I'm not that old for people listening. I, I often make it out to be like, I'm really old. I have a few gray hair. Anyways, uh, <laughs> my, my actual question uh, is like you, you seem very plugged into some of the newer things to do around New York City, correct? Sure. I think uh, sometimes, yes. Sometimes okay. I know what's up and I go out and do all the things. And sometimes I, too, stay in on a Friday night, even without <laughs> <Okay>. a kid. <laughs> That's valid. Yeah, you know, no kid your way. That's valid. Uh, but you are 20-something. You're in New York City. What's your idea of a fun night out in the city? Probably going to see live music or going to a bar. Maybe both. Um, definitely with a group of friends. Okay. So I think it's about like having a social experience with people and maybe meeting other people. Okay. So this is the real question. This has all been preamble so far. How how did your museum hack tour compare to like a night seeing your favorite band play? Because you know the tour sounds like something that I would like to do, but my favorite thing to do these days is hang out with my seventh month old, right? And like. I, I don't do the same things that you do. And I think the general idea of what is exciting or modern or hip and with it, if you're lame like me and say things that way, um, it, it doesn't seem like a tour at a museum would be one of those things. So would you bring your other friends who normally go to the bar to see live music with you to something like this? Yes, a thousand percent. It was honestly, really? it was so much fun. It was so fun. And I think what is great about it it's because people don't do this sort of thing very often. It's like a great way to switch up what you normally do. Okay, that makes sense. That's probably what I expected you to say, actually. Um, but it feels inescapable that given our instant access to anything we want to see on the internet, we would not go to a museum. Like, I get that they're trying to provide a better experience, but it's still ultimately witnessing things that are in a museum and isn't like the internet like the world's biggest museum in a way you know what i'm trying to say like it just doesn't seem like there's any way to get people to actually go right i definitely understand what you're trying to say and that's actually one of the questions i had for nick is it odd to you that more people don't go to museums because like in our digital everything age sometimes i think about a piece of art and I'm like well i can look that up online or i can you know learn all about it online so what's wrong with this line of thinking you know, I think that the future of entertainment is these live experiences. And I'm obsessed with the live experience. I learn best when I'm in front of something, when it captures all of my attention. I think that today's audiences are digitally saturated. I don't know about you, but I have a thousand apps on my phone that I never use. I get all these dumb notifications and stuff. But it's in actually going to the physical spaces, these museums and these places that serves kind of like a real life Wikipedia. So yeah, I'm always 
baffled or befuddled by friends who are like, oh, yeah, I love museums. And I'm like, really? When was the last time you went? And they're like, oh, I went like three years ago. Um, and yet they make plenty of time in their schedule to go out to bars and nightclubs and things like that. This idea of live experiences really hit home for me. Most people who know me know I'm kind of obsessed with this Dutch word, gezellig, which roughly translates to mean the cozy, warm feeling you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people. This is what drew me to performing live music and even to working on a podcast. It's all about being in the moment and sharing that moment with the people you're with. Following this sense of gezellig, whether we know we're doing it or not, just might be key to finding the consistently fulfilling moments of joy in our own work. Wait, so hold on. I have to interrupt there, Tally. Okay. Uh, first of all, I love that word. So I give me the definition again. I, mean, I want to I clarify the word, but I, just so people hear, what was the definition of that word again? The cozy, warm feeling you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people. I freaking love that. Thank you. I love it too. To be clear also, that's kind of a definition I came up with after a bunch of Dutch people told me what it meant to them. Rough translation, but that's what it means to me. Okay. And, all right. So the cozy, warm feeling you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people. I love that. Like I'm instantly drawn to, uh, I, I mean, just like those dinners you have with friends or family where like you just fall into this conversation or it could be something huge, like going to a big sporting event where something amazing happened or seeing something in nature on a hike with people. Like I, there's just so many applications to that. What now, what is the word? I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to try to say it for people's entertainment because I'm a consummate entertainer. Hazelig. <laughs> Yeah, so gezellig, it almost sounds like... Okay, so so hold on. Gezellig. Yes. <laughs> and you have to you have the, when you say Right, it. almost like people think it's Hebrew all the time, but it's Dutch. I'm a quarter Jewish. My, some of my family would love Fair that enough. I'm saying this word. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm Jewish too, so people assume when I talk about it that it's Hebrew. But yeah, gezellig. Okay, so can you spell that? Yep, so it's G-E-Z-E-L-L-I-G. So G-E-Z-E-L-L-I-G. IG, the cozy, warm feeling you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people. I love that. I think that like, like one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is just because of me, the person, but then also me, the host of this show. It it has a lot of like ramifications for what we're trying to achieve when we reinvent the work. Like if you think of anything created intended for an audience to experience, so think of this like buzzy term experiences, what you're trying to do when you create little changes innovations all the time that that art of reinvention you know consistently great work consistently changes all those things we keep saying is we're trying to create little moments of chazelig you did it that was it did i get it did i do it okay that's what we're trying to create that we're trying to create this like cozy warm feeling that you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people like we're trying to teach our audience to expect the unexpected because we keep making little reinventions right and i think that right there's something the unplanned part always really gets to me. Like you can't manufacture these moments. It's the organicness of it that is so exciting and lights up our brains like that. And I think that's exactly the point. That's what reinvention does. There's something in game theory. Uh, it's not just in game theory. I think it's spilled out into just a broader awareness. Uh, variable reward. Hmm. Variable. So instead of saying, do this, you'll get that right? Like beat this level of a video game and you'll unlock this prize or, you know, finish your or beat your sales quota, you'll get a bonus. Like what what people found that's actually more motivating and also more inspiring, like you get more of an emotional tug and affinity towards something um, is variable reward. You don't know that moment is coming. And then when you experience it, 
it's that surprise, right? right? Like that's that's really what we're talking about when we talk about the art of reinvention. It's introducing tiny and consistent moments of surprise to whoever is receiving your work all the time instead of a giant radical change once in a while and calling that innovation. I think this idea of chazelig, 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 you got a chat when you say it, of chazelig or variable reward or these, this, these moments of shared and unplanned bliss with other people, I think that that showed up in your museum hack tour. Definitely. As we walk, I need you to participate in a little game. In order for you to become the king or queen of Westeros, you are going to have to unseat me, the current reigning queen. <laughs> uh, and you are going to have to murder me. I'm so sorry. Uh, as you go through here, I need you to decide what I did to deserve being unseated. Because this, is, this has to be justified. And I need you to find one piece of art to inspire how you will be murdering me to take the throne, all right? Snap a picture of it. We've got a little walk and some time to think about it. It should all fit in under 30 seconds. Keeping a museum's business stimulating and awesome for your guests, your staff, and you is rarely easy. As you can imagine, not every billion-dollar art donor or museum guide was thrilled by Nick making games and adventures out of all of these sacred artifacts. Have you tried something that just totally didn't work, and how did you deal with that? Oh, yeah. We have, we've done a lot of things that completely didn't work. I'd say, though, that the overall largest challenge has been in figuring out our relationship with these museums. What started out as a very renegade project by me of just, you know, running around with my friends to have fun has evolved into more of a working relationship with these museums where we're like a vendor that go through their group services department and we actually buy a lot of tickets and have like purchasing agreements with some of them. So that nature of evolving has been, it, it has at sometimes been like a point of conflict some of the museums that we've gone into, in fact, have explicitly said, we do not want you here. Um, and so that's been an interesting challenge to work through. Why do they say that they don't want you? Many museums want to control the messaging about their stories and their narrative. And the idea of having a third party writing that history and maybe sharing some of their what they perceive could be dirty laundry um, can be... A, a source of conflict. What they don't realize is that we love these institutions oftentimes as much as they do. And they start working with us kind of like at arm's length. And then when they see how much of, you know, frankly, nerds we are and how much we love these places, they really start to warm up to us. And we have great conversations with these curators who oftentimes tell us some of the best stories. What is the craziest thing you've heard like what's the craziest fact you can give us about the Met one of my favorite stories at the Metropolitan Museum of Art is regarding the acquisition of the Temple of Dendur which is this Egyptian temple that used to be on the banks of the Nile River and we read about this backstory in the former museum director's book that's called Making the Mummies Dance amazing book by really a director that was like the Elon Musk of the 1970s. He was appointed as the museum director of the Metropolitan, I think when he was like 34 years old. 
and really reinvented and basically doubled the square footage of this museum during his tenure. The story that he says about this Temple of Dender was that the Egyptian government wanted to give this temple. They had a huge crush on um, Jacqueline uh, Kennedy Onassis, and they wanted to give the temple actually to Jackie O as a gift. They didn't want to give it to a museum or to the U.S., and they're like, okay, you can't just give it to Jackie O. Um, and so they gave it to the United States, and then there was this whole you know, bidding process of who was going to get it between New York City and Washington, D.C. And it just so happened that Jackie O had bought an apartment on Fifth Avenue around, I think, 84th Street that sort of looked down into Central Park and also looked down onto the Met. And supposedly, rumor has it, what sealed the deal was that they said they would install the Temple of Dendur on the north side of the museum, on the um, northeast corner which would allow her to see directly from her apartment down into this temple. And so they would nicknamed it, you know, Jackie O's nightlight. And sure enough, to this day, standing inside the room where this temple is, if you look up, you can see what her old apartment was and exactly where it is. It's this amazing story that so when we tell it on the tours, it has this big reveal because you're looking at the temple, the guides, and then the guide says, and now if you turn around and then boom, you're looking right at where her apartment was. Crazy story. Museum hack is a pretty daring concept. For many entrepreneurs, that would be enough. Create a big new thing and boom, you're done. You've changed your industry and that's no small feat. But what makes companies like Museum Hack stand out and makes us want to know more about them is that they don't just stop there. Constantly changing and shifting is built into their framework as much as, say, engaging tours that take place in famous museums are. And are you conscious of trying to keep these tours refreshing and constantly, you know, reinventing them in any kind of way? Or do you find that just by nature of having new tour guides who are always coming up with new material, the business kind mm. of does that on its own? Thank we face the same similar problems that museums do, which is a little bit of an audience. I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's like when they've seen your message so many times, it's almost like fatigue. And so by coming up with new, mm. uh, new tours and things like that, it does help us attract new audiences. I remember when the um, Pokemon Go was a huge fad, maybe two or three years ago. And we came up with a museum tour for it <laughs> that really allowed us to reach a whole new audience that was obsessed with this trend. And it brought them into the museum and we were able to attract even more visitors. We've talked a lot about the concept of the tour. And it's almost like making a show, really. You have a concept like Pokemon Go or Game of Thrones. Then you have the format of the actual art the guides take you to, your path around the museum. And you have the talent you know, who is actually leading the tour. And it's probably easiest to tell how a tour is doing based on the concept. Like, you know, the Pokemon Go tour is doing really well right now. So how do you really look at and evolve the format? So like when you're in it, like when it's right before a season of Game of Thrones or during and the Game of Thrones tour is selling really well, how do you decide in flow or in stream what to change and what to keep about the format itself? During the early days of running my tours, when it was still just a hobby, I was 
you know, pretty relentless about soliciting feedback on the experience. I'm probably the only person I know of who, as a hobby, would hand out scores to get their uh, net promoter score from their friends. And at the end of every one of my tours, I would pass out a feedback form that would simply just ask a few questions. What was the best part of the tour? What was the worst part of the tour? What part of the tour could we delete? And do you have any suggestions? And then how likely are you to recommend this tour to your friends? Um, doing those tours, similar to your show, I think what we, what we heard from people is that what they liked the most was the stories. And so as much as I wanted to just show people pure quantity and to kind of cover as much ground because I get excited by, you know, racing through the space from corner to corner, trying to see as much as possible. Overwhelmingly, the, the large amount of feedback that I get is the idea of less is more and that letting people go at their terms. So during those early, early days when I was really developing what is Museum Hack today, it was those feedback forms and listening to people every single night. I mean, I remember starting my business as a solo founder, just sitting at this Vietnamese restaurant down in the village that was open late at the end of a long night of museum tours by myself, wearing a sport coat and a tie, sometimes a bow tie, sitting there by myself at the bar, eating Vietnamese pho and just reading through these feedback forms to process people's feedbacks on a Friday night and then adjusting the whole thing for the next night and look at feedbacks and see how that would affect it. I did that for about a year as I built it up from a hobby into a real business. That sounds amazing when you're first starting up. And so my kind of cringy next question is then how does that scale? How do you have that qualitative feedback when you have so many locations and so many tours with so many different guides happening all the time? The real future of Museum Hack, about a year ago, I promoted my chief of staff, a woman named Tasia, to CEO. And Tasia has been instrumental in developing those processes and training systems that have helped us grow to what's now five cities and hopefully is going to be even more on the horizon. And so one thing that she did in her time here was she came up with a program of city leads where each of our cities has their own city lead who works with mentors and gives feedback to all of the guides within those cities. For us, that's been really the only way that we've been able to manage and have five different cities operating at all the same time. Museum Hack guides are notorious for coming up with games and challenges to keep the tours exciting. Besides having to pretend murder Anna for the throne, as you heard earlier, we were given a tour-long challenge to take as many photos of wolf or dragon-like imagery as we could find along our travels. The winner would be crowned the ruler of the museum at the end. Besides being fun, it got me looking at art I might have glanced over otherwise. I spent that extra few seconds scouring for wolves and dragons, took in some beautiful pieces along the way. One game that our tour guides like to play is called Buy, Steal, or Burn. And so we have them walk around, usually in the modern or contemporary galleries, where it's easy to have an opinion, um, to say, choose a work of art that you feel very strongly about, and then we want you to tell us, would you buy it because you like it so much? Would you steal it because you absolutely have to have it? Or do you hate it and you just want to burn it? You think it's just rubbish. 
And playing those types of games, saying something like, oh, I would burn it because I hate it. That is challenging the convention of how you think about your museum experience. But it's not violating one of the like cardinal museum rules. We think there's there's like three main museum rules, which is like no flash photography at a lot of places. Um, don't touch the artwork. And then like no food or drink. And so those types of things, we know what the boundaries are of the legal museum experience, so to speak. And then we can work within them to what we like to think we're reimagining what the adult museum experience can be. Okay, so Tally, so now this is where I'm wondering what I, I think a lot of people in business wonder often. Like when I get off a stage after a speech, for example, the card that someone tries to play, not that they're trying to be like... Uh, antagonistic in any way at all. I'm not trying to imply that, but I think the card people play, the card is, but my boss, right? Or it's really like, but my culture, you know, but but like this system I'm a part of, but I don't feel empowered personally. And what you've really laid out so far in the story is Museum Hack empowers its employees to try stuff, to experiment and reinvent things how they see fit. And there's not like a somebody who's sitting in the back of the bus, so to speak, like observing and being like, nope, can't do that, right? There's not like somebody in the back of the classroom with a little checklist of what they have to do to ensure they stick to script every time. So it's a high surface area experience. There's lots of nooks and crannies, so to speak, in a tour. And these employees are constantly playing and tinkering. So how how do they avoid this feeling that like, oh, I can't do that because I'm going to break the rules or I'm going to be disrespectful to the art in my attempts to be fun or funny. You know, like how do they empower their employees to invent? Yeah, that's a great question because it is really hard to take risks and, and try things. But ultimately, it's not about breaking the rules or being disrespectful. It's pretty much exactly the opposite. I think Nick and his team have the utmost respect for the art which was so clear in all the details Anna told us about every piece we saw. I think it's really about seeing what wasn't working for so many museum goers and deciding, okay, you know what? We can do something about that. I have an idea about what to do about that. Uh, okay. So what's, what I love about that answer is uh, you're anchoring everybody in the business to like the vision. It's like, this is where we're trying to go. That's the mountain peak we see in the distance, right? We have some ideas, like rough ideas, like we should roughly go left here it's like the tour is what we're going to reinvent and we have some ideas as to how and some ways that it's worked before but like you the tour guide the employee you have a machete you're hacking through this jungle along with us as long as you keep in mind the mountain peak and that is the ultimate vision here try stuff like start hacking away ha no pun intended uh that was terrible but you know what i'm saying like it's what you just said is like they have the utmost respect for the art and they understand that like they're trying to break from this like staleness, the stagnation that is rampant across the museum industry. And you could even make a case more broadly in, in things that are related to history and art too. And by just making sure people are so anchored to the mountain peak that it empowers them to just like everybody's going in the right direction, even if they're taking little steps that feel different person to person. D- d- does that sound like roughly what's going on here? That does. I actually really like that analogy too, going for a mountain peak, because also like you might slip and fall every so often. You might lose your footing a little bit. It didn't quite work. It didn't totally resonate with your audience, but I think that's exactly it. It's having a collective goal as a team and as an organization saying like, you know what? 
we've all learned to climb at different stages in our lives. Some of us have climbed more mountains than others, but just go for it. We're going to hit this peak, all of us at some point, and do it in the way that you know how to do it. Yeah, it's, it's almost like there's two things you put in place. Like one is, that's the mountain peak, understand it very clearly. So the first thing is the mountain peak. The second thing is the feedback loop. So it's like now, everybody who's giving these tours report back what's working, what's exciting, you know, look at the audience ratings and, and the, the museum, uh, museum goers feedback and surface that to each other. So let's hear next actually about what the people who are going on these tours, what the reactions have been like. What has been the most surprising reaction uh, that you've gotten from any guests? I had a guy who was in his mid-60s. He had just retired and he called me up. He said, look, I hate museums as much as I hate it when my wife goes shopping. Um, she dragged me to this museum and I went on one of your tours and I freaking loved it. And I want to know if I can buy a season pass. Now, this was interesting to me for two reasons. One, because as a business owner, I'd never considered a season pass. Um, and two, because this guy was in his late 60s. It was a group that we had never thought that we were targeting. Because originally, this really was a tour for millennials and that, you know, that 21 to 40 demo. We now, since hearing his feedback and hearing other positive, really good feedback from people, it's not for millennials. It's for the millennial minded. It's for the people with short attention spans. It's for those who think that I don't like museums. Museums aren't for me. And that's the core that we're trying to go after. We're trying to reach people who think museums are boring. I don't really go to them. That's the bigger audience we think than what a lot of museums do, which is like to kind of preach to the choir. One of the most fascinating things about this show in general is when we come to these people who have done something that we think is unthinkable, to them it feels just like a no-brainer. Like, of course, they had to do it that way. So what I'd love to ask you is why was this concept, these renegade tours, why were they something that were an obvious solution to you and to your staff and to the guests who go on the tours? I think what has really helped us is that I don't come from an arts background. In fact, I've never taken an art history class. I was a business major. I've never been a museum tour guide. I didn't even really like museums. I still think most museums are pretty boring. And the idea that I came from so far outside of the industry and that we've continued to hire people that typically don't come from the museum world that really allows us to have a fresh perspective. It's almost like the convention of what a museum experience is supposed to be has been so established for so many years that people aren't stopping to talk to the people who aren't going to museums or the people who go once and never go back. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you did is spent a lot of time looking at the customer, the guest, and their experiences. And what museums tend to do is focus more time and attention on the actual pieces the exhibitions in the museums themselves. I like this. I want to riff on it for a second because I, now that I've worked in the museum field for a few years, I know both sides of the equation. And I think the reality is, is that Museum Hack has an easy job because we get to be the outside company that gets to come in and throw spitballs and make jokes and have fun without any of the administrative burdens 
that go with running a large bureaucratic organization like a museum. The ideas that we have, museum educators since day one have been saying, well, that's nothing new. You know, we've been thinking about that and, you know, we've been doing that too, but we just have our hands tied. And that's the reality for many, many museum employees. The stuff that we're doing is not rocket science, but there's many other things and true clients and customers that they have to play to. Think about it. For most museums, I would estimate that the majority of their revenue does not come from any of the visitors. At the Metropolitan Museum, for example, I think it's way less than 20% of their annual budget comes from the door fees. At one time, I think it was even less than like 10%. The museum's true customers for many large museums are their donors and their funders. And a donor's intentions and wishes for the paintings that they give to a space are very, very different from a, from a visitor's wants and needs. And so I think that we have a real privileged position to exist at the intersection of focusing on our customers. You know, when I started this business, I never raised venture capital. I never took any type of funding. I said, look, I'm going to bootstrap this and I'm going to focus only on one thing. And that's creating the best possible experience for the customers. Okay. Um, dragon? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Dragon? No. <laughs> Dragon. One. Yes, one dragon. Lion. 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 Winged horse. Excellent. We're at two. We just decided those were nothing. Wolf. Very rambunctious dog. Right. They're not nothing. Four. Excellent. Bird. Dragon. Thing riding on something. Think lion because it's got a mane. But it has like a beak. Oh, Griffin. Uh, Griffin. Mm-hmm. Still not a dragon. We tried. Four, five, four, five, 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 And when looking at how museum hack will consistently reinvent itself, it seems to me like you would face two problems. So the first is you've found a formula that works, you're going to bring it to new cities, but how do you keep reinventing it so that it doesn't grow stale? Sure. I mean, the first thing that I think about is that museum hack five or seven years ago was just me. It was me and this idea. And then I started to hire my friends to help and support me. And that's the only way that it's been able to grow. So the future of Museum Hack will be entirely dependent on our team. I think I've had, you know, maybe one good idea, which is this renegade museum tours. And then if anything, I hope what's going to take us to the next level is this team of people that we've built that have already over the past three or four years surfaced some of the best ideas that we've ever had and have allowed us to grow. So even more than anything else, what we're going to be doubling down on is how does our team have a sense of ownership and leadership within the business? How does reinvention actually happen? And you know, maybe it starts with that first instance of reinvention. 
When you, Nick, and your team went, aha, this is what needs to change. This is what Museum Hack is going to be. But where do you go after that? The best thing that you can do as a business owner, if you want to reinvent, is to simply listen to your customers. The market is made at the front lines of customer interaction. And so as much as maybe I think that I could sit in a conference room with a whiteboard and brainstorm these new ideas, if I'm not out there leading the tours, on the tours, following the tours, talking to the customers, hearing what the marketplace needs and wants, I'm going to be so disconnected. So I'm always, always shocked and impressed whenever I do spend time on those front lines. And I further have just so much respect for our tour guides and all that they're able to do as they deal with these situations. So the best piece of advice that I would say is that if you're starting to think about reinventing it, do it from the front lines, not from the boardroom. Winter is coming. Unthinkable is me, Tally Gabriel, and Jay Akunzo. Special thanks to Nick Gray for being on this week's episode and to Anna Bianco for leading an unforgettable tour of the Met. You can find out more about Museum Hack in our show notes. And in the meantime, keep your eyes and ears peeled for our next episode. It's the last one of the season. It's very near and dear to my heart. And it concludes our journey of continuing to figure out how to keep things consistently creative and refreshing. Catch you next time.